Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. I hope that we're finding you well this evening. We are very excited to be able to finally present this program. Um, this evening. This is a program that we were going to do two weeks ago, but we got derailed by the UConn game. Johnny and I were sitting here with the cardiologist I am going to have on with us tonight. And as we went to go live, the UConn game was playing. So we cannot cut out the UConn game. That is like, that's a mortal sin in the Connecticut market. You cannot interrupt the UConn game. So we um, politely bowed down and um, our cardiologist was gracious enough to come on with us um, tonight and do the program that we anticipated to do for Heart Month because February is Heart Month. So we are very excited to have with us tonight Dr. Rashir Patel. Hi, Dr. Patel. Hey, how are you? Good. Are you in the car again? Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm learning more and more about our mobile lives, that yeah. we do a lot of our work from the car. Yeah, I know. A lot of our work is from the car. I did a meeting today, two meetings from the car today coming from the Johnson market. So I hear you. <laughs> and you just got to pray that you don't lose service. I won't. I won't. Uh, lose service because I'm not going anywhere rural. Okay. Oh, that's good. Stay on the highway. (laughs) So I want to introduce you because you are brand new um, to our medical group. So this is Dr. Rashir Patel. He is an interventional cardiologist with the heart group that's part of Trinity Health of New England here in the Waterbury market. Um, He is board certified in internal medicine and has a subspecialty in cardiovascular disease and interventional cardiology. And he is going to help us tonight talk a little bit more about interventional cardiology and how that can actually add to your well-being and help you improve your well-being. And we're also going to talk a little bit about some newer technology that's part of interventional cardiology and some new advances that we have that he can talk a bit about. So, Doc, first I'm going to ask you, why why did you choose cardiology? Well, what was the draw for you? Uh, that's, uh, that's a good question. I think... Uh it's a question that I'm asked often, and I'm not sure I have uh, have the perfect answer. I think uh, I think it was it was multifaceted, and and a big big part of it was that you can see with uh, with cardiac interventions, you can see improvement in uh, in your patients, and a lot of the times it's a, it's an immediate improvement, right? And, uh, and that's more that's more in uh, in line with you know what interventional cardiology encompasses. But uh, that was probably the big reason that I chose it coming out of residency. And I think what people may not know is that truly you have to start in internal medicine and then specialize, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. The, uh, the, the, the process is uh, a few years of medical school, then uh, three years of residency, and then another three of fellowship in general cardiology. And then you subspecialize uh, for another year in interventional, and then for myself, another year in structural heart. So it's a long road for sure. I think so, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't stop. No, because uh, you're always I, learning, right? Absolutely. And you know what I find really interesting, too, is when you are you start out in the internal medicine and then do your subspecialties, you really get to know the whole person, which is so important with the cardio- with, with the world of cardiology. Without a doubt. And I, uh, I, I'll, I'll actually uh, put in some sort of a, uh, a confidence booster and, 
for those folks that are uh, in the primary care field and taking care of uh, you know the uh, the large majority of patients in, the, in in primary care, those guys are really the ones that do you know whole body care uh, yeah. if you will in terms of uh, in terms of their their focus and you know cardiology sort of specializes a little bit more. Well, you know, I want to give a shout out to your whole team because you've joined a team of some incredible docs. And, you know, I don't think our community realizes how large our heart group is growing. But we have banked by two cardiologists, um, Dr. Kevin Kett and Dr. Paul Kelly, who they'll kill me if I call them the senior partners, but they are the senior partners. (laughs) And then we have your partner, who's another interventional cardiologist and really one of the first females I know in our area that does interventional cardiology, Dr. Rebecca Scandrett. Yes, an and, absolute uh, phenom. And two and two more that are part of the group, Dr. Joseph Nanaraj and Dr. Miriam Azim. So our team is growing for sure, and you're just complementing that by adding on another level of interventional cardiology. Yeah, I think uh, I'd like to echo what you said. Those are... Uh, that entire group is uh, is, an, is is really just a, a fantastic group of individuals. They're, you know, they're uh, they're people that are compassionate and have uh, have nothing but uh, patient care in mind. Absolutely, uh, to be a part of it. Now we only have you for a half an hour, and when you and I are done, just so you know who's going to follow you, I have yep. um, Pam Doubleday, our our registered dietitian from the hospital, talking a bit about heart health. So once you do all your good work, how we help those patients stay healthy. That's uh, that's probably more important than anything that we're doing, to be, uh, to be completely honest. I don't know. I don't know about that. So you had emailed me, you know, we were talking back and forth about what we wanted to talk about. And there's a lot of new technology out there. So I want to give that definitely, it's, you know, give it its due. I'd like okay. to talk a bit about some of the new interesting technology. What would you like to start and focus on? Um, well, I guess uh, I guess we can sort of uh, build from coronary disease, which is you know which is a big part of uh, which is a big part of cardiology and and more specifically interventional cardiology, and then uh, and then you know move forward uh, towards structural heart disease, which includes you know valvular heart disease and uh, and uh, management of uh, of AFib and risk of or mitigating risk of stroke. With, uh, with new technology. Perfect. So, um, so let's talk so about coronary artery disease. Absolutely. So with, uh, with coronary artery disease, you have, um, you know, you have uh, one, of the, one of the major causes of uh, morbidity and mortality in, in the U.S. And if you look around, almost everyone knows someone that's been affected by coronary disease. And uh, it's, it's not unique to, you know, one specific group of people, not unique to a specific race. Uh, or sex, but um, but it's it's all encompassing. So, with that being said, coronary disease has been around for quite some time, and uh, and you know we've made huge strides. I think in the 50s is when uh, is when we started to understand the uh, the pathology of myocardial infarctions, and and to be completely honest, it didn't really become clear until maybe about 15 uh, 15 years ago. Wow. So. So with that, um, the big advances over the last 20 years had been uh, had been management of acute myocardial infarctions, or you know, those, the heart attacks that we hear of someone sitting at home and all of a sudden their chest starts to squeeze on them, or they feel like an elephant sitting on them and they need to get rushed to the hospital. Those are those are patients that were experiencing what we call acute coronary syndromes, or or 
in layman's terms, a heart attack. Mm. And uh, and so the best way to manage those patients in the past had been um, had been to simply give medications, give some blood thinners, and you know see what you can do. And uh, and it was crippling because people would uh, would be in the hospital for prolonged periods of time. And you know if you talk to senior partners, they'll tell you that folks were in the hospital for a week, two, maybe even longer, and you didn't really have a good option. And they so had heart damage from it too. And they had and they had sustained heart damage, exactly, right. which then crippled them even further. You know, I so, know uh, of people that that I mean, because I've been a nurse for a really long time. You know, it's uh, as you mentioned this. I'm thinking back to patients. I'm also thinking back to family members where life would have been right. so different. Right. Exactly. Exactly. There. If you know, if something else was around 20, 30 years ago, yeah. maybe, uh, maybe they have a different uh, trajectory in life. So, um, so with that being said, the uh, the biggest advent had been uh, had been the introduction of um, introduction of balloons and stents, mm. and uh, and it was incredible because if you think about it, when you have an acute blockage and you are able to open it up quickly without having to go to surgery, you can really you can really save muscle. And uh, you know, one of the big uh, coined terms that uh, the AHA or the American Heart Association and the uh, you know the American College of Cardiology really tries to emphasize is time is muscle in the right. sense that the sooner you get uh, that blockage open, the, the more muscle you save in terms of the heart. So um, we've had uh, we've had incredible advancements, but more more recently in the last two years, we've noticed that our population has done incredible work with just medications and that's that, you know the primary care and the general cardiologist and everyone doing their job in terms of making sure patients are taking medications so that their hyperlipidemia and their diabetes is managed but now we have uh, we have patients that come into the hospital with more complex coronary disease and that means disease that has disease that's not necessarily just one one simple blockage that you would see in a heart attack but disease that includes many different sites or in the in the heart that have blockages and not just regular thrombotic blockages meaning you know simple simple blockages but blockages that have a lot of calcium and so we have devices that uh, that we call uh, we call atherectomy devices they're basically little small I guess the easiest way to describe it is a small drill that, uh, that we can place uh, you know within a catheter and then into the vessel Wow that breaks down the calcium and uh, and we can do this with uh, we can do this with the support of a uh, of a small heart pump called an impella that uh, that can fit through the leg and, and really support your uh, your heart during uh, during these tough procedures. And um, now is that hereditary? Are, you know, with the calcium buildup, is that hereditary or is that diet or or a combination or old, or aging? Yeah, I think I, I think you hit on all three. I think the pathology would would uh, would suggest that it's uh, in certain situations it's uh, it's probably driven more by hereditary. If you have um, you know if you have a strong family history, you're probably more likely to have uh, have coronary disease at a younger age, and uh, and those patients might have might present with uh, with more calcium. But you know, for folks that don't have such a strong family history, it doesn't exclude you from uh, you know from developing. Uh, complex coronary disease if you have a poor diet if you're diabetic unfortunately mm-hmm. or if you're you know a little bit overweight and hypertensive or if you smoke so there it's uh, it's multifaceted just as you mentioned and, and aging is is the biggest uh, you know deal breaker in, in the sense that uh, everything sort of um, 
gets a little bit worse with aging. You know, when I was in the when I was in the field of imaging, working for our radiologists, um, yeah. they started doing a lot of um, testing with the Cascon called calcium scoring. Is that something right, we right. still use? Is that a good screening tool for this? Oh, that's- that's a that's an excellent question. I think that's a, that's a great tool to use, and yes, we use it all the time. It's a, a calcium score is it's actually a, a pretty simple test to uh, to have performed. Uh, you you can go in for a CT scan, and there's no contrast, so you don't need any IVs or anything right. of that nature. You go in, and uh, and the uh, the radiologist or the cardiologist, whoever's uh, you know supervising the scan, will will then look at how much calcium is deposited on the coronary vessel and and the uh, the calcium depo- deposition is quantified and um, and there's different risks in terms of uh, in terms of uh, cardiac events over a certain time period depending on how much how much calcium is uh, is calculated on your coronary and you know it's something that was in the news quite a bit and now i'm just i haven't heard it in a while have you seen many patients getting it are people still ordering it because i think it's a really good like you said it's a really good tool that i don't think is used enough yeah i think uh i think i think it's uh it's exactly as you said it's a it's a great tool that helps um helps risk stratify folks in uh you know in most likely in in patients that have a, a sort of low to intermediate risk of of having coronary disease if you're you know, if you're coming into the hospital with chest pain and you're you're grabbing onto your chest and uh, your your EKG looks a little funny, the the, the calcium score is not going to be that helpful because you have a high risk of uh, of having disease and you should probably just go for the angiogram. Right. But if you're if you're a little bit younger and you're you're having some atypical symptoms and you're being seen in the office, I think a, uh, I think a calcium score is a great uh, a great tool to to really help risk stratify you. We, you know, I hear a lot, and I don't want to switch gears on you totally, but, you know, I, I want to be conscious of your time, but we of course, of course. we hear a lot about structural heart now. It's kind of like, to me, a new buzzword that's out there. It's not something that I used a lot when I was in middle school school or was a term that was used a lot. I think yeah. it's I think it's something more spoken of now, and I think um, individuals in the community, as they're reading literature or hearing things on the news, they hear structural heart. Can you explain what that means? Well, structural heart is essentially just uh, just any uh, any uh, abnormality in the different components of the heart. And so, if hmm. you if you break the heart down into its you know into its different uh, different components, you'll have valves, and then you'll have appendages, and then you'll have the cavities. And and then after all of that, going from you know inside to out, you'll have your blood vessels, which we the coronaries, which we already talked about. So, in in regards to in regards to sort of the the big things that have come about in uh, in the world of structural heart or or in the field of valvular heart disease, the uh, the big one that everyone's very much aware of or, or probably has heard of is uh, is TAVR or you know, transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Um, and this is uh, this is something that I think is is really is really important to discuss because it is making its way into mainstream media, and I think it's important to have. It's important to have uh, your physician give you give you uh, guidance on how to how to approach this topic. Your um, your aortic valve is just one of the uh, one of the four valves in the heart, 
but it's the major valve that um, that undergo undergoes uh, turbulence, if you will. It's the valve that connects the major ventricle or the the major pump of the heart to the uh, the biggest. Uh, biggest blood vessel in the body, the aorta. Mm-hmm. And the aorta is then responsible or acts as a conduit to provide blood flow to the rest of the body, including the brain and then the limbs and obviously the kidneys and all the major organs. So with that being said, the aortic valve experiences a lot of trauma through its life. It's, uh, it, has to, it, has to, it has to face incredible pressure. Um, and with that, it starts to develop calcium and it starts to degenerate. Now, if you're a 25-year-old, your aortic valve is perfect. It has three leaflets for the most part, unless you have some sort of congenital abnormality. But it has three leaflets and those leaflets are thin and they open and close perfectly. But as you age, those leaflets start to develop calcium. And as they develop calcium, they become stiff and rigid. And they do two things. They don't open well, and sometimes they don't close well. And so what you end up getting is something called aortic stenosis if they don't open well, and aortic regurgitation if they don't close well. And so um, if you think about it, it becomes a a fixed obstruction. And when you have a fixed obstruction, nothing you do is going to help. So if you try to reduce your blood pressure or you try to, you know, eat, you know, eat more vegetables or get in more exercise, nothing's going to change the progression of this disease and nothing's going to reverse it. So these are, uh, this is a group of, uh, a group of patients that really need some sort of intervention. And classically the intervention was surgery. Um, but unfortunately surgery carries uh, a greater morbidity in, in patients that are considered to be high risk and a greater risk of mortality. And that's how, uh, that's how the idea of a transcatheter option came in. In the last 10 years, there's been some incredible advancements to the point where we're putting in uh, you know, percutaneous uh, transcatheter valves in which there's no cutting involved. Wow. And the patient is able to really uh, get the valve placed in one day and then out the next and back home with minimal recovery. It, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, to me, it's it's absolutely amazing to be able to do this. Yeah. Now, you mentioned, you know, as we look at it for people that are intermediate or high risk, I mean, as an individual, if I had heard I needed to replace my aortic valve at some point, I would want this as an option. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I, I should tell you that it's important to have the conversation um, with your cardiologist who then, uh, you know, if it's determined that need, your valve needs to be replaced, We'll have a conversation with uh, with several different cardiologists, and not just uh, not just make a decision on his own or on her own. The, uh, the the management of structural heart disease is a multidisciplinary approach, and I think that's the most important and one of the best things that's happened with uh, with cardiology and with uh, cardiac surgery over the last five years. Decisions haven't been unilateral, and they've been made in uh, in concert with other other disciplines. Absolutely, I mean it, it speaks to what we're doing as um, a as a regional um, 
partnership with our Trinity Health of New England um, regional approach, right? So we have a whole regional piece. I don't know, you know, and that plays into a huge part of how we get the best of the best of technology, the best of the best docs and recruitment and having leadership from a whole team, which isn't just one hospital, but is our sister hospitals as well. Absolutely, and I think uh, St. Francis has been uh, has been doing an incredible job with their tower program, and they're only going to keep growing. and uh, And that's where uh, that's where I'd uh, I'd like to say that uh, I can try to try to make a little bit of a positive impact. And I think uh, I think we really can. I'm really excited about that, and that's that's the beauty, you know, having the sister hospital that you partner with, to bringing the team together, and and yep. getting everybody to the Absolutely. best of the best is the way to go. So. How about, and I want to make sure we have a minute to talk about it, because I have seen it on the news, but Uh AFib is a big deal. Yes. My husband had a few episodes of AFib, and um, we're going back now to 2000. So 16 years ago was his first episode of AFib, and then unfortunately a year later he had a stroke. But AFib is real. It's, It's spoken about more and more over the last 15 years and we have a device now that has yep. is helping us to manage AFib and maybe give us an option to all those blood thinners absolutely there is a I mean uh, it's unfortunate that, uh, that your husband had to experience you know the the catastrophic uh, you know endpoint when it comes to when it comes to AFib and that stroke and, um, and well that's, that's proof to what we didn't have back then right it's proof to what right, we didn't right. have and I didn't have you doc I didn't have you <laughs> well I'll, I'll tell you this there was there's some incredible people that were there at uh, at that time when you had the they drive. were they were we uh, just didn't have the direction. technology for sure right. so um, so again in, in in regards to atrial fibrillation and uh, and the history of of uh, you know its natural progression, the the big risk of AFib is like you said stroke, and um, and the question has always been how do you how do you mitigate that risk of stroke and and traditionally the the best option was uh, was a blood thinner, and unfortunately the blood thinner that was used was the uh, was the best thing that we had and that was warfarin, mm-hmm. and um, and you know some people call it Coumadin, but uh, but in any case. And this medication had its own, you know, its own problems in the sense that you you had to manage your diet accordingly. You had to uh, you had to check your blood levels, you know, constantly, and uh, and there was uh, there was there was risks of bleeding, and and sometimes there was risk that it wouldn't even it wouldn't be effective, and you'd still stroke even if you were taking the medication. Hmm. So um, so with that being said, uh, the the next best thing uh, to do was to create. You know, a, a different uh, a different type of type of medication, and industry actually made a huge uh, a huge move forward by introducing a few different drugs that have been classified as DOAX or direct oral anticoagulants, and um, and the the uh, that that uh, class of medications has been um, has been really a boon for patients with AFib because it's uh, it's been shown to be a little bit more effective at reducing stroke. Then, uh, in comparison to warfarin, but um, but the, the step after that is is really the group of patients in which bleeding becomes an issue, hmm. and that's the problem whenever you have whenever you're taking blood thinners, hmm. and uh, and so for those folks that uh, that have atrial fibrillation, but have had a bleeding episode, and and are 
interested in, in some sort of alternative option so as to avoid long-term anticoagulation, there is a device called uh, the Watchman device. And this is basically uh, a left atrial appendage uh, occluder device. And the left atrial appendage is a, is a little pocket of uh, trabeculated tissue that sits in, the, um, that sits in one, of the, uh, one of the upper chambers of the heart. And because of its trabeculations and because of its position in the heart, it really starts to form clots when patients are in atrial fibrillation. And then, uh, and then those clots sort of break off and, you know, take, uh, take the path of blood to the brain, and that's how you get the stroke. Now, this is, this is probably the best way to explain 90% of strokes in atrial fibrillation, so it's not 100%. But with that being said, the, uh, the left atrial appendage occluder device, or the Watchman device, can be, uh, can be placed again through a vein in the leg <laughs> on the same-day procedure. Um, and uh, it'll sit directly into the left atrial appendage. It will seal off the appendage, and then you take uh, you take the anticoagulation for about a month and a half, and you come back for for a test and an echocardiogram. And if everything looks good, then you're off anticoagulation for life. Oh my! So now it's the watchman stays in you forever. The watchman stays in you forever. It gets uh, it gets epithelialized, or you know, just uh, right. skin sort of skin sort of just uh, just grows right over it yep and um and it's in there for life and then uh and for the for the most part you can uh, you can essentially come off anticoagulation with a uh, with a reduced risk of stroke and interestingly enough and i don't like to uh, i don't like to push this because it doesn't really make uh um it doesn't really make uh a huge difference, but um, but it, it has a decreased risk of mortality in comparison to uh, in comparison to warfarin. Wow, wow, that's yeah. incredible! It's, it's absolutely incredible. It really is. And as it patients is, uh, age, it, it as patients age, we worry more and more about them on the blood thinners because you know if they they're they're not as stable. If they fall and hit their head, we have to worry about a bleed in their exactly. brain. So there's just so many there's so many reasons to not do that. That's exactly it. You, you, you hit it right on the head there. There's, you know, there's so many, so many patients that are just not on anticoagulation at all and just taking the risk of stroke. Um, and, you know, there's, there, there are options out there. Wow, it's incredible. Doc, we're right at 630, so I want to respect your time and your, and your grace for doing this for us a couple of weeks later. So you are absolutely amazing. We are so happy to have you and so excited that you're part of the team. So this is Dr. Rishir Patel, part of the Heart Group of Trinity Health of New England, 1320 West Main Street, and their number 203-709-7300. But I'll give that all to you at the end of tonight's program. Doc, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You're awesome. We'll talk soon. For sure. Bye-bye. So I want to thank Doc for joining us. We are going to just take a two-minute break. Um, I think, John, you put some music in there, huh? We're going to just take a two-minute break, and then we're going to have our next caller join us who's on the line, doctor, I mean, a registered dietitian. PM, I just made you a doctor. Registered dietitian PM Doubleday is going to talk to us about heart health diet. Hi, 
everyone. Welcome back. Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. We just had um, on the line with us Dr. Rashir Patel, who is a brand new interventional cardiologist with us um, at St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England medical group, the heart group, as we call them, part of an amazing team of cardiologists, which I will update at the end of the program. Um, And he did need to leave us at 630. So I was able to get um, one of our registered dietitians, my favorite registered dietitian, but I'm not supposed to play favorites, um, at St. Mary's Hospital, Pam Doubleday. And Pam is going to talk to us a little bit about heart health and a heart healthy lifestyle. Hi, Pam. Hey, Robin. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, honey, thank you. I miss having you sitting next to me. But we're trying to keep the station a little light on on guests. So we do it remotely. Absolutely. But I did like when you used to sit next to me here. We used to giggle. Yes. And giggle and give great information. Absolutely. I don't know if you had a a chance to hear Dr. Um, Patel. um, And I'm not sure if you've even had a chance to meet him. Have you met Dr. Patel yet? I have not. He's an amazing, one of our brand new interventional cardiologists at the hospital working with Dr. Scandrett um, and talking a lot about some of the newest technology that we have, the TAVERS program and the Watchmen, and you know, talking a lot about interventional cardiology. And I just thought that, you know, we should take what he gave us and they give us the opportunity to talk a bit about a heart healthy lifestyle and diet because you see patients either after you know after they have procedures and after they've been identified as as someone that's got heart disease and you've got to get people back on track but it really is information that's probably good for everybody even as a um, precaution or preventative absolutely And that's our goal, uh, mostly as dietitians, is to teach people to eat a healthy diet to prevent any type of heart disease. But again, like you said, once they have it, they come to see us, Mm. and we're happy to sit down with them and and outline a healthy lifestyle and good diet plan. It must be hard, though, right? Because it's so hard to learn better healthy habits and keep people on it. So, you know, I think when we're younger, you know, or, or, you know, if we decide to do it on our own without being kind of forced to do it because of a, of an illness, it's easier. But as if you have all of a sudden you're pushed to it and you're not psychologically ready, it must be harder for you to work with that patient. Yes. So many people are deeply rooted in family tradition And so that's one of the things we do as dietitians is work with them Mm. slowly. And I think one of the most important things that we do is talk to them about how their body works. There's so much research out now, and that's what a lot of the surgeons are able to convey to their patients, and then we continue that. A lot of good research out now about what truly is a heart-healthy diet. So so let's talk about that. You know, and... As Dr. Patel just indicated, you know, we're talking 15 years ago, we didn't have the technology that we have now to treat heart disease. I'm sure we had basic information 15 years ago on a heart healthy diet, but what does a heart healthy diet look like now in 2021? So let's talk about not just diet, but let's talk about the four things that I talk about when I talk to a patient, because it's a whole health approach. Hmm. So we talk about a heart healthy diet. We talk about the importance of exercise, and the recommendation right now is at least 150 minutes weekly, which is 30 minutes, um, five days a week. 
seven to eight hours of quality sleep nightly. Okay, and that's, that's hard. <laughs> that's hard. Yes. And I stress know. reduction, you just said. Oh, yes. Especially now, you know, during times of COVID. Oh. You know, during COVID. <laughs> but I think it's important because a lot of people might focus on one thing, but yeah. it's important to to make sure that you understand that there's a lot of mm. things that impact the heart, and so it's a whole life approach. So then to. You know, those are that those are all good points. And you're right. You, you have to do a bit of everything to balance it. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about let's start from the bottom up. Okay. Let's talk about the stress reduction. All so right. when you talk about stress reduction with with your patients that see you, what are some of the tools that you can give them to do that? Yes, absolutely. So. It's really tuning in to something that you're going to enjoy doing. Because if you don't enjoy doing it, you're not going to do it, right? right. So it's things like yoga, mm. Pilates, meditation, listening to music, walking, you know, out, being out in nature, things, you know, having an animal, taking care of them, you know, having company. So it's just something that you are going to enjoy that's going to reduce your stress. So people laugh at me because, and this is a true story, I am a general hospital addict (laughs) since I was 18. And I live by that 45 minutes that I have taped Mm-hmm. every day to watch and at nine o'clock i don't care if the house is burning down <laughs> that's that's something that you look forward to i do and i get lost in it like i truly get lost in it and i feel so good when it's done unless it's yes. a stressful scene but i feel so good and i know yes. that may sound really silly but even a good no, show right even a good show that makes our mind go somewhere else yes there's so many good things. Like one of the things they do on the Today Show on Sundays is at the end, they show a beautiful, serene picture. I don't know if you've ever watched the Today Show. And they say, we're leaving you today. And they'll show like a beautiful meadow mm-hmm. in Switzerland or a national park. And it just, I, I watch it and it just, it makes me think of, you know, happy things and it, right. it lowers your heart rate. It relaxes you and that's the key. Yeah, that's excellent. Now, what about sleep? I mean, that is a hard thing to accomplish. Yes. I so mean, it really a is. A lot of people I, yeah. are, are too alert before they go to sleep. They're, you know, they're, uh, big thing is their phone. Okay, <laughs> so you've got to shut down your phone at least a half hour before bedtime do some type of meditation or listening to music, just relaxing, maybe sitting on a yoga mat, you know, thinking of things you're thankful for. And mm-hmm. believe it or not, all the research says that the sleep before midnight is the, mo- is the most quality sleep. It's, it's true. when your body goes into a deep sleep. I fall asleep after General Hospital on that couch. I am out. And then all of a sudden I wake up and it's midnight. I'm like, oh, no. Well, that's okay, because you've had some good sleep. I've had some good sleep, yes. Yes, and that's good. So I want people to to know that try to go to sleep and relax your body prior to midnight so you get some good good Mm. quality sleep. And obviously the sleep after midnight is good, too. But they're talking about that before midnight sleep. You know, one of the things I started doing is when I'm relaxing and watching my general hospital, I take my iPad and I take my phone and I go plug them in in a different room. Yes. 
So I have no electronics after, you know, after Jeopardy. There's no electronics. And you know what's good about that? Because what brings us, you know, back in the caveman days, right? Yeah. We used to, the sun would go down. And as the sun went down, it would relax the body because the darkness will stimulate you to sleep. Mm, it does. And what wakes you up in the morning is the light, That's right? True. The light coming into the window and stimulating the retina. And so all these people that are on their phones all the time, they have that light from the phone or the iPad. And that's stimulating them and keeping them awake. So try to remember to stay away from things that are lit like that and get into more of a where you're, you're lowering the lights, you're getting into darkness, and you're going, you're following your natural rhythm. Yeah, that's, it's so important to do that. It's definitely yeah. so important to do that. We've had Dr. Um, Claudner on with us, our pulmonologist and sleep medicine specialist, and he talks about that all the time is, you know, unplugging yourself at a certain point at night yeah. to start getting your body into that relaxation mode so you can better sleep. Very good. Yeah, that's the key. So what about exercise? Like, you know, that's, you know, so you, we do have our, our, you know, cardiac rehab department, which I think is great. So we yeah. have that for people that, you know, have experienced heart disease and now we can help them slowly get back on track um, and, and develop really good habits to keep their heart healthy. But it's taking that from the cardiac rehab now and putting it out into real life. And how do you do right. that? Right. Yes. And so exer- the heart is a muscle. And so exercise is key to strengthening your heart. It also helps to burn sugar in the blood for diabetes, right? It helps with, you know, clearing your arteries as does diet. And one of the key things about exercise is really doing something you like. It does not have to be, you know, a, a lot of gyms have been closed during covid mm-hmm. It's getting people procrastinate a lot. They say, oh, I'm going to go to the gym, and then they don't get there. So there was this whole concept on the Internet called interval exercising. Hmm. And what it tries to teach people to do is instead of waiting till the end of the day when you're tired and you work, to do 30 minutes of exercise, because that's the recommendation, 30 minutes, five days a week. So instead of doing that, what they try to teach is do 10 minutes in the morning, Mm -hmm. 10 minutes in the afternoon, and and then you only have 10 minutes left when you get home. So uh, most of us can do 10 minutes in the morning. We can do a little stretching, right? We're brushing our teeth in the morning. We can, you know, bend down a little, do some arm circles. Mm. That's 10 minutes. Then at lunch, we could maybe do a little walk around the parking lot. Yep. All right, at work or walk around the block safely. We can even do some little exercises in our office. There's all this exercise equipment out there now that's fairly inexpensive. Treadmills that fold flat under the bed, bands, right, little video. There's a peddler even that you can put down at your feet and pedal. (laughs) I've seen those. Don't laugh. I'm going to get one of those for my husband because he really, it really will help the side of his body that was affected by the stroke because he keeps that leg moving even if he's sitting down. Absolutely. And so you have all these things now that you can use in your home, especially with COVID, right? People don't want to go out a lot. Right. They have all this exercise equipment now, inexpensive, readily available, that you can do 10-minute little intervals. And then at night, you have 10 minutes left. Who can't sit on their yoga mat, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about 
um, stress reduction, sitting on the yoga mat, stretching our arms, stretching our legs, right? Mm -hmm. Doing some very simple yoga poses. And during that time, just meditating a little bit, winding down. And, and, and there you have better sleep. So it all works in harmony. You say a lot about, I hear a lot. I'm hearing you say yoga a lot, and I hear a lot about yeah. yoga. What makes yoga so beneficial? It's very low impact. Mm. So for a lot of people, they may have some type of injury. They may have knee pain. They may have back pain. They may suffer from, uh, you know, sciatica. And so this is very low impact. It involves just sitting on a mat and doing very uh, simple stretching, deep breathing, so very good for people who can't do something high impact. And so less stress on the joints. Less stress on the joints. Which yeah. is so huge because, you know, people that were runners, particularly, you know, they have a lot of knee injuries. Uh, people that played all kinds of sports, they could have, you know, whether right. it be baseball, basketball, shoulder injuries, knee injuries. I know my husband from many years of basketball definitely has some bad, definitely has bad knees. And, you know, it that, that, stress impact is really not good on our larger joints right so and yoga so, is a way to open up from what i've understood too is yoga is a way to open up some of those joints and allow blood yes. flow to get to them that's right and it's low impact so after doing it you're not going to feel like oh my gosh i've just taxed my knee or i've put a lot of weight and you're you know you can do some yoga sitting down, so it's not a lot of pressure if you have any problems right. with your feet. Right, they have okay. chair yoga. <laughs> they do. Yeah, chair yoga. chair yoga, right. Very low impact. The other thing that I discuss with my patients is a concept called Pilates. Mm. We used to do and Pilates was, classes at the hospital. It was introduced by Joseph Pilates mm. to the uh, armed forces, and it, re, it what it stresses is your core. And if you strengthen your core, everything else emanates from that. So your back, you, you'll if you strengthen your stomach and your core, you'll have less issues with your back, with leg pain, with arm pain. And again, it's like yoga. A lot of the exercises are low impact. You know, that's that's such a good, a great suggestion because I think that people don't realize how important that core of your body is. Yes. And and you know, we talk a lot about corn. I don't think people fully understand that. But you know, these are things for for someone that's either had heart disease or has a family history of heart disease or really just wants to do some preventative measures. There's so many different options that don't require you, like you said, to join a gym. Some of these things yes. you can do on video. Yes, there's a lot of great Pilates videos, low impact. There's great Pilates books that you can just buy the book. And the pictures are, are wonderful. They take you through the beginning Pilates all the way through intermediate to advanced. They're wonderful. And we used to do, we, especially during with COVID now, I, though the YMC in Greater Waterbury is making, has made some definite changes in doing, you know, they, they definitely have people coming back. They're, you know, very, very safe and, you know, socially distant. But they're also doing some stuff virtually, which is really neat. Exactly. And really things people should look TV into. On. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's go now to food, because that's going to take yeah. the longest time, Pam. All right. <laughs> so let's talk about that new 2021 Heart Healthy Diet. What does it look like? All right. So what I always stress when we're specifically talking about heart health is there's two things I like to focus on so that we, we do this in enough time. 
the first thing, and, and this is a shout out to all my patients who have come to see me because I've been here and I'm in my sixth year, and everybody calls me the fiber queen. <laughs> because fiber is the key to so many functions in the body, and one of the most important is heart health. Okay? So there's two types of fiber. There's what's called soluble fiber, and I want you to think about things like oats and fruits, beans, okay, like apples and blueberries, mm-hmm. all right? And soluble fiber absorbs water, so it turns into like a gel. So what it does is it goes through the body. It's like a car wash, and it picks up all the debris that your body makes. And as it moves through your intestinal tract, it picks up all that debris, like bile and cholesterol, okay? And it makes you have a a really good bowel movement because it's like a big sponge. Right. Okay? Right. So that's, that's, I'm sure, I don't know if you've ever seen the Metamucil commercial on TV, but it shows this big sponge moving through the intestine and picking up debris and carrying it out. And that's and that's because that's all fiber. Metamucil is fiber. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So, very importantly for women, the average fiber intake should be twenty-five grams a day. That works out to eight to ten grams at each meal. So, what would that look like? So, I'm going to give you an example. So, for breakfast, a really one of the top five breakfasts is a beautiful whole grain oatmeal. Hmm. It typically has a half a cup, has four grams of of, um, fiber. And then if you add a fruit to it, that's how you get up to your eight grams of fiber at at breakfast. Hmm. I was just thinking about that. I haven't had oatmeal in a long time. Now you're going to get me on the bandwagon. (laughs) Yes, and it's only got 3.5 grams of fat and six grams of protein. So it gives you everything you need in the perfect combination. Hmm. And you say whole grain. So is there a difference with the oatmeals? Yes. So you want to look at the, the, the label, and it should say uh, whole grain, mm. because some, some of them like, um, will be a little bit more processed. They're thinner, and the fiber will be less. Okay. Like two grams instead of four. Okay. So you want to look at the label. It should say whole grain oats, no added sugar, because you can add your own sugar. Right. And it should be at least three to four grams of fiber per serving. Lunch. So lunch you're looking to do. Now think fiber. I want you to think plant-based foods because animal foods are devoid of fiber. They have zero. Right. Okay. So for lunch, you're looking to do plant-based, fibrous foods, salads, vegetables, beans, whole grains, okay, even a little nuts and seeds. Those Mm -hmm. are your plant-based food groups. They all have fiber. And some combination of that, for lunch and dinner will give you 8 to 10 grams of fiber at lunch and dinner, giving you that 25 grams that you need every day. Wow. But you can add another protein source to that, right? So, which I know yeah. beans and I know beans and nuts are also protein-based, but, you know, so at dinner you can add that protein-based, whether it be chicken or, or whatever, yeah. a, a, a lean meat. Yes, and but we don't we don't recommend more than three to four ounces of an animal based uh, food because that's where you start to get into my next piece, which mm. is the saturated fat component of heart disease. Mm. 
So all of your plant-based foods have what's called unsaturated fat. That's plant fat. And that does not lead to the arterial plaque buildup in the artery. When you go to the other side of the farm, I call it the other side, <laughs> the other side of the fence, the animal side, <laughs> to, get your, to get your protein, okay, you ask yourself, though, what else comes with it? So that's where you, you get the saturated fat. And the saturated fat we now know from all the research is the leading cause. It's what the liver takes and makes what's called sticky plaque. And that sticky plaque will begin to stick to the artery, and it will build. And eventually it can block the, ar- the artery, which carries blood to the heart, and that is how you, that's how you have a heart attack. So, okay. So we're on the other side of the fence now, right? Yeah. As we're on that other side of the fence... What is a perfect protein on that side of the fence? Or what's the proteins you prefer? Okay, so I always teach my patients, again, shout out, because I always use the farm and they (laughs) like it. And they say, I teach them. Very simple. When you pick up a food, if it grows from the garden side of the fence, that's your healthier food Mm -hmm. because that has all your carb, your protein, minute amounts of fat, your fiber, and it, it isn't, the fat is not saturated. If you eat anything on the animal side, you have to look at the label because your highest saturated fat foods are your red meat, mm-hmm. your pork, mm-hmm. and all your cheeses. Mm. Oh, cheese. I know I love cheese. <laughs> yes. And everybody gives me the look, Robin, when I say cheese. How about regatta? Regatta's not bad. Regatta's <laughs> lower in saturated fat, but still a good amount. Yeah. 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 So let me, let me say this. So the recommendation now, okay, and this is good for people to, to know, is less than 12 grams of saturated fat per day. Mm. And that's, that's the recommendation. It's seven per, less than 7% of your calories. So in a typical 2,000-calorie diet, it would be about 15 to 16 grams, but a little bit more conservative on, an, on my part is keeping it more like 12 because right. if you lower your saturated fat daily and, and you're responsible for that, you, re, you significantly reduce the risk right. of arterial plaque. So uh, a lot of people eat chicken and yes. turkey now, right? They switch to that. As a dietitian, I know that you're yes. saying, I mean, red meat's your toughest. How do you feel about chicken in the diet? Okay, so I think what's important for people to know is that chicken is leaner, right? but that it still has a good amount of saturated fat in it. So that's why the recommendation is when you put a piece of meat on your plate to only make it the three or four ounces, one serving, so that you keep your saturated fat to a certain amount each day. Right, so you're not not filling your plate with a large piece of protein, but you're complementing, you're complementing it with what the rest of your meal is. So you're, That's, so, right? Yes. So think of a plate, the my plate, right? Yeah. Three quarters of the plate should be plant based protein, hmm. like a salad, a vegetable, and maybe a little brown rice and beans. So that would be three quarters of the plate plant based. And then that one little portion can be meat, but it doesn't have to be. If you just kept your 
brown rice and beans, your broccoli, and your salad. That's all protein, and it gives you plenty of protein without having the meat. How about fish? So fish is also on the animal side, and it's higher in cholesterol. But it's not on the fence. It's in the water. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, but I still consider it. You know, it's a fish, but it still has a good amount of saturated fat okay. and, and cholesterol. And remember, it does not have fiber. Oh, I so didn't realize that. it's a little bit more difficult to digest and move through the intestine. I didn't realize that. Yeah. We think we're being so good. Yeah. I know. So there- the recommendation now is, um, you know, minute amounts of fish in the diet. Now, originally, they were talking about fish as a source of omega-3s. Yeah, for the salmon. Yeah. And mac- but yeah. a healthier source of omega-3s is your flaxseed and your walnuts. Oh, I love walnuts. Yeah. I'm not a big flaxseed person. Okay. Well, you can even put them in a smoothie and pulverize them right. into the smoothie, and you don't even know. And you don't even know. So, oh, my God, and we have, like, so little time left, but I have so I much know. to ask you. So yes. that's another quick thing. Do you do you okay. recommend smoothies? Yes. Mm. So I don't recommend them a lot. I recommend them um, maybe a couple times a week. Because okay. remember, what you're doing is you're liquefying the food. Even right. though the fiber stays in it, it will go out faster to the blood. Mm. So if you eat the whole fruit and you don't liquefy it, it takes longer to digest the fruit, the whole fruit, and the sugar will go out slower to your blood. And that's a very important part of maintaining uh, regular blood sugars. Pam, I'm going to just tell you something. Johnny K saying, oh, my God, we ought to have her back. So I am going to reserve the right to bring you back. <laughs> okay. If that's okay. And we yeah. need to pick another day. I mean, we definitely have colorectal awareness month, diabetes awareness. So I am going to definitely reconnect with you to bring you back because your information is we need a full hour of time, you and I. All right. Uh, that would be great. You are amazing. And you're part of an amazing team of dietitians. I think you're not as, our dietitians should be celebrated for all the hard work you do with inpatient and outpatient. And I so appreciate your work. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for having me. Oh, my God. Thank you for You're the best. Thank you for joining us. So that's Pam Doubleday. She's our registered dietitian at St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. We have an incredible team, as I mentioned to you earlier tonight, with our group of cardiologists. And I totally recommend that you go on our website, the Heart Group, Trinity Health of New England, and you go on trinityhealthofne.org and type in the Heart Group and you will be able to pull up our entire cardiology team of Dr. Paul Kelly, Dr. Kevin Kett, Dr. Rebecca Skandrit, Dr. Joseph Nanaraj, Dr. Miriam Azim, and our newest, Dr. Rashir Patel. I got them all in. And you can reach them at 203-709-7300. Thank you everyone for joining us. Robin Sills, have a great, safe weekend. Take care. Thank you.